And please take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. I do have the passage there for you on the insert with a, an outline. We just finished the Easter season and the last sermon I preached was on the resurrection and the first words of Christ after he rose again, greetings. Now we begin the study of the book that records what happened right after Jesus rose from the dead. It tells the story of his ascension and it tells the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the growth of Christ's kingdom through his apostles and his witnesses, which includes us. There are 28 chapters in this book. There is an organization that calls itself Acts 29, and it's clever. And the reason why they say this, they're capturing something about what is started in the book of Acts. It's the sending of the Spirit to begin uh, this growth period of the kingdom of God, the church. And in so doing, it leaves off. It's like a cliffhanger at the end because it means to continue the story all the way up into our day until Jesus comes again. The book of Acts starts with him going to heaven, and it really doesn't end, if you will, until he comes again. So they call themselves Acts 29, and that's kind of the, the period we're living in as the church expands, as God's kingdom expands, and we await the day for Christ to return, uh, the way in which he went back to heaven, or he went to heaven. The book is called Acts. It's not the most clever title church history has ever devised. It's a good one, though, to describe the Acts of the Apostles. But in reality, it's the Acts of Jesus by His Spirit through the Apostles. It's, you could say, the ongoing ministry of Christ from heaven through His Spirit, through His Apostles, making us witnesses. But that's just too long. So Acts is what we'll go by, knowing what that story, uh, what the story beholds, what it tells us, what we learn. You know, Luke writes Acts just as he wrote his gospel together. That's 29% of the New Testament. And Acts really serves as the backdrop for the rest of the New Testament. You have the gospel stories that all align with each other, and then you have the book of Acts. It's a bridge to the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the New Testament is written um, along the timeline that Acts walks through. So when Paul goes through Ephesus or Thessalonica or Corinth, we learn of all that in the book of Acts. And then he writes those letters to the Ephesians, to the Thessalonians, to the Corinthians. And it'll start to make more sense to you who those people are that Paul's writing to as we see the churches planted in the book of Acts. It's an exciting book. And Luke writes wonderfully. Of all the writers, um, his level of Greek is the highest. He's very um, picturesque in his descriptions. It's a blessing as it is to read any of God's word, but especially Luke, the way he writes. Uh, the book of Acts has it all. It's a history told in a riveting form, in a narrative form. It uh, has apostolic teaching and sermons. It has miracles. It has signs. It has wonders. Fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, all brought about by the ministry of Christ, by his Holy Spirit, through his apostles. The book of Acts is the history of Christ's kingdom beginning to grow and to spread. The book of Acts records the actual beginning of the fulfillment of of God's promises to Abraham as the nations are blessed. John Calvin says this in his introduction to Acts in his commentary. It was written to understand how the church of Christ first began, how the apostles began to preach the gospel, what success they had in the same, what cruel combats they suffered, how manfully they passed through so many hardships and impediments, 
how courageously they triumphed over all the pride of the world under the reproach of the cross, and how wonderfully God was present with them. We must highly esteem this book, which, if it didn't exist, the knowledge of so great things should either be quite buried or greatly obscured or wrapped in diverse doubts. For we see that Satan used all his engines that he might so bring to pass that never any of the acts of the apostles might come to light, but such only as were mixed with lies, to the end that he might bring into suspicion what things were spoken by them, and so by that means might pluck out of the minds of the godly all the remembrance of that age. But instead, God has seen fit to preserve the book of Acts, his word, so that we would know how Christ fulfillment came to pass. How, when Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church, this is how he started to do it. And we have it at our disposal by God's great grace and blessing. The book of Acts is the true history of what happened after Jesus rose again and ascended. The book of Acts is the true story about Christ sending his spirit and empowering his apostles to spread the gospel against many enemies. Even secular uh, teachers of history recognize the historical value of Luke. It is written in a very precise, expert way. It's not telling a myth. It's not telling some story with morals. It's, con- it's constructed just like any ancient history would be constructed. Famously, a uh, professor of ancient history at Oxford University, A.N. Sherwin White, wrote this about Luke. The historical framework is exact. In terms of time and place, The details are precise and correct. One walks the streets in the marketplaces, the theaters and the assemblies of first century Ephesus or Thessalonica or Corinth or Philippi with the author of Acts. For Acts is the confirmation of historicity. And it is confirmed as historical and its witness is overwhelming. Any attempt, Sherwin White says, to reject its basic historicity, even in matters of detail, must now appear absurd. Roman historians have long taken it for granted. The book of Acts is, though, more than a history, as you know. The book of Acts is ultimately meant to compel all following generations, us here included, to be fervent witnesses for Christ until he returns. And the fervency comes from what underlies the book of Acts, both in its writing and in the events that it records. The ministry of God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is our guarantee for the expansion of Christ's kingdom. It's what gives us courage. It's what motivates us. It's what compels us. When the commission is given, we have uh, the energy for it because the Spirit of God works it. And that's the beautiful message of the book of Acts. We see it happen, and we see it going on because this is what God is doing and working. In a nutshell, the book of Acts is about our being witnesses for Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in a real sense, The book of Acts begins with the disappearing of Jesus into the sky. And the story of the book of Acts doesn't end until he comes away, comes again in the same way. Hear now as I read God's word, Acts 1, 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
And while standing with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Let's bow together as we pray. Heavenly Father, we begin a new and exciting journey through, the, through your word this morning. We are anxious to walk through the account of Christ's building of the church through the magnificent empowerment of your Holy Spirit. We ask for the same Holy Spirit that guided our spiritual forefathers in the book of Acts to be present with us today as we seek to understand your Holy Word. Please renew our minds by the Spirit and the Word as we sit under the, this Word from heaven as recorded by Acts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Acts is the source book for the spread of early Christianity by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll say this many times and in many ways throughout, and it won't because I'm just repeating my sentence. It's a constant reminder by Luke as we walk through this passage or this book. It traces the work of the Holy Spirit through the birth, the infancy, the adolescence of the church. The Gospel of Luke, the first letter by Luke, is about Jesus Christ crucified and risen. This second book of Luke, called Acts, is about Jesus ascended, exalted, and building his church from heaven through his spirit, using the apostles, and extending to us as his witnesses today. Very simply, the book of Acts here introduced begins with Jesus announcing the unstoppable advance of the gospel through the Holy Spirit-empowered witness of his people. For any of us who are shy or don't know how we fit into God's plan or how we're supposed to act out on what we hear. Recognize, for you, a believer, for us as the church, he gives us the spirit, his spirit, the Holy Spirit. You need not fear or be worried about how this will work itself out. Hear God's word. Ask God to help us be faithful to be those witnesses, but gain courage, gain confidence that Jesus is building his church, he has always done it the same way, by his spirit working through his people, and nothing can stop it. That should make all of us excited, no matter how shy we may be. We all have a part to play in what God's doing, and he's doing it through his spirit. This is Luke's second volume, as I've mentioned, and you probably know. It's his second volume about Christ. And the opening verse makes the connection with the first volume. Look at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You notice again, he addresses this book to his friend Theophilus. Some have surmised that this isn't a real person, it's just 
a, a, a way in which he can tell the story of history. I don't think that's probably the best way to look at it. He seems very personal. Theophilus means friend of God, probably a, a God-fearing Gentile just like Luke is. Luke's the only Gentile writer in the New Testament. He's writing to a fellow Gentile who may be some kind of government official. At least that's the way he's introduced a bit. It seems that way, some kind of official in the first volume, the Gospel of Luke. But back to our passage. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That was the subject of Luke. Until the day when he was taken up and after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He's just recounting what happened in the first volume. And the first volume ends with his ascension. Uh, the second volume, the book of Acts, kind of picks up there again. It, they overlap a little bit. He tells it from a little different angle and then begins from there. Um, the first book is about Jesus' building on earth. And then the second is Jesus building his church from heaven after he ascends. This is, again, making, makes up a huge portion of the New Testament between Luke and Acts. It was on the second missionary journey that Paul took, which is recorded in Acts, that he seems to have met Luke. He may have known Luke before, but that's where Luke is traveling with him. Luke, as he tells the story, says we often when he's describing what happened on that journey, so we know Luke was with him. When we go back to the Gospel of Luke, he describes the approach, or you could say the history philosophy he's using, how he gets his information. Listen to what he says to Theophilus in his first volume. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. This is this witness of Christ. People were trying to write down what they knew about it. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. We're going to learn about apostles in the book of Acts. You and I are not apostles. We're messengers in a different way. We're witnesses. We're ambassadors. We're called that. But apostles were eyewitnesses of what Christ did in his resurrection in particular. We'll come back to that. But here, Luke is expressing where the sources are coming from for writing it. He says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And here's the reason, or the, I should say the angle that Luke is coming from. Every historian has an angle. It doesn't mean what they say isn't true. They just are expressing some feature of a very dynamic group of happenings. He says, he's writing to Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke wants to write a volume by getting eyewitness accounts in an orderly fashion so that his friend Theophilus and others like Theophilus would be certain about the facts of Christ. Imagine this for a moment. He, got, he had eyewitnesses. So Luke lived um, in Jerusalem. We know that by what is mentioned earlier, or in other places, I should say. So he has access to eyewitnesses of Jesus' full life. Maybe even Mary herself, Jesus' mother. Um, imagine him going to her. You know, every Christmas season, we read the Luke 2 account, the, the, the nativity account. And imagine that Luke gathered that by talking to Mary and her expressing to him what happened. She would have been in her 70s. It's quite possible. There have been other people in addition to the, the apostles, the disciples who became apostles, who could have given him many eyewitness accounts. And he, and he had time when Paul was in prison to start putting this volume, this two volumes together. 
Rayburn says, we read Luke and we can tell that he is telling us exactly what happened. This is not a historical novel. It's serious history. The first book was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The second book is about what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension by his spirit through his disciples. Put it this way. Godfather 2 is the greatest movie sequel in history. The book of Acts is the greatest biblical history in history. It's a wonderful sequel. It's the best sequel. And you'll see how this plays out the same way the first volume read. And when you read them together, it's so clearly the same person telling this story in two parts. After he rose again, but before he ascended, he gave some instructions. Verse 2 tells us, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So we know there's a period of time in which he's instructing them. It's over a month long. It's intense. A lot of information, no doubt. Spirit-originated instructions to the people of God, the disciples in particular who had walked with him already. Now it was all coming together. Imagine if you were one of the disciples. You had heard all his teaching over a three-plus-year period. You were confused about quite a bit of it. We know they were confused by some of the things they said. And now he, you saw him die. I mean, you saw him die in horrific fashion. I mean, there's no mistaking his death. And now he's, he's risen again, and he's with you. And so now you're really paying attention, right? I mean, now you're really on to everything. And you're trying to draw back all the things he said and, and put it through this new lens of the risen Jesus. And Jesus is telling them many other things, preparing them for what will come. But notice what happens next, starting in verse 3. Christ's actions at this moment, after his resurrection, it shows his careful oversight of his church's expansion. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So there's a purpose to his appearance and his being with them. Now he's with them in an intermittent way compared to the way he was in his ministry before his death. He appears to them at least 10 different times. Uh, clearly, there's something different about his glorified body. It's a picture, a prototype of all of our glorified bodies. So he appears to them and then teaches them. And these are intense times of teaching where they're trying to take in all this revelation that he's giving. Just in being, every time he shows up, it's another proof of all that he said to be true. And it's important to note here that the foundation witnesses for the church, the apostles, had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. This is what gives them their status as uh, to speak with prophetic utterance, to have the Spirit work through them, uh, and what they say is the Word of God. And so they are eyewitnesses chosen by, God, by Christ himself. And notice it wasn't a brief interaction. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. John Stott says it like this. He thus presented himself to their senses, their eyes, their ears, and their hands. Such an objective experience of the risen Lord was an indispensable qualification for an apostle. Many proofs. Can you imagine what more proofs? Uh, just, just cementing the truth of who he is, what he did, what he's going to do, and what he's coming to do. Verse 3, during 40 days, 
and speaking about, and here's a con- one of the clues to the content of what he's speaking about, the kingdom of God. Now, when you discuss the kingdom of God, there can be different nuances and it can become confusing quickly, depending on what angle someone's talking from. But, but very simply, it can be understood as God's rule exemplified through his people, through his spirit, growing his people, his church. Now, it's a supernatural thing that God does and develops. It's a spiritual kingdom fueled by God. That's what makes it certain. And the best way to know what he means is to go to Jesus' own words about the kingdom of God. It says in the text that he talked to them about the kingdom of God. What did he say? Well, Luke records some of these instances when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God in his gospel. Listen to what Jesus said about the kingdom of God in Luke 13, for instance. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made their nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. So he describes the kingdom of God as something that grows mysteriously. Um, a, a tiny little seed becomes a tree that birds can live in. I mean, a tiny, a mustard seed's super small. In leaven, he uses in this positive sense that it mysteriously makes something small become big. Jesus, for this time that he's Awaiting before his ascension, he's talking to them about the kingdom of God, about the growth of the kingdom of God. It's supernatural. It's something you can't explain. It's mysterious, but it's sure. We know at least that much about what he would have been teaching concerning the kingdom of God to these people who are wondering what comes next. What comes next? Verse 4, he gives a little more insight. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard it from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I don't know how to compare this, but this had to have been a massive relief to everybody listening. Um, The the amount of overload they must have been receiving by way of revelation. And and how to process it all. Um, I've taken some classes recently, they're seminars, and they're, they're Six or five days, and they're eight hours a day. And the professor just kind of hammers you every day, and you just look, you, you, you must look kind of catatonic to them by day three. You're just standing there like this, and, they're, and you shake your head after a while. You're, you, you don't really hear anything, but you're shaking your head, and it's just too much for you to take. And so there had to be a little bit of this with these original disciples, right? They're hearing all this revelation about what's going to happen, what's coming next, but here's the beauty. It's sort of like when the professor says, but you know what? Forget all that for a moment. Here's what you need to know on the test, and it's simple. Jesus says, stay here for a little while, it ends up being 10 days, stay here for a little while, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And when I send the Holy Spirit, it's going to fulfill the things I promised. It's going to fulfill what it says in the Old Testament, in the book of Joel, when he said he was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. He's going to give his spirit with with, uh, an enhanced ministry for the people of God now. And it's also going to fulfill what Jesus said in John 14, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. What a relief. You're going to send your Spirit so we can remember all these things. Because they were struggling. We know they're struggling by some things they say even in this passage. They just couldn't couldn't grasp it all. They needed the assistance of the Spirit. And by the way, we need that too. We cannot 
understand his word. We cannot apply his word without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is a living book. It's not just another book. It is a book that was penned by the Spirit of God using human authors, superintending over them so they would not make error. He gives it to them perfectly and clearly the way he wants through their personality. He puts it in, on the paper for us. We have it this way through this person's writing like Luke. And now we have it preserved, and he preserves it so that we can read it. So it's written by the Holy Spirit in this sense. And then the Holy Spirit enlivens it to us when we read it. So it's dynamic in the fullest sense. It's not like other books. And we, to understand God's word and apply it, must have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you've had any spiritual fruit in your life, if anything has ever happened in a way that you've grown spiritually, it is because the Holy Spirit of God has done it in you. If the church has ever done anything effective, if the church is growing, and I don't mean by numbers, that's not real growth. Real growth is depth among its members and then spreading that and the gradual way that God works. Sometimes explosive, usually just gradual, but that growth, if there is any, it only ever comes from the Holy Spirit. And if you once read the Bible and it didn't mean anything to you, and then you pick it up and now it's alive to you, you know what I'm talking about. That's the Holy Spirit among many of his, the Holy Spirit's ministries. And now he's promising to them that the Holy Spirit will come. And then in verse 6, 7, and 8, we have the most important verses. Verse 8, I would say, is the most important verse in the book of Acts. That's a big statement to make. But it's the thesis. It's that, that passage that the author states so that we understand what everything else is about. And the buildup is wonderfully human because of these people who are on overload, like I've just described. It's Christ's plan for his kingdom advancement. Verse 6, so when they had come together, mind you, they've had this long course of study with Jesus. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What a question that is, after what he's been describing about the kingdom of God. Now, I put it this way, and I don't want to be sarcastic about this. I contend this way, but other than being mistaken about the nature, the scope, and the timing of the kingdom, it's a good question. Because the kingdom of Christ was speaking about, uh, the kingdom that Christ was speaking about was a spiritual, wide-reaching kingdom, unprecedented in its scope, in its nature. They were thinking still, in some sense now, about the physical, limited kingdom of Israel. And to their defense, you might say, they're probably thinking, when is this going to all end? Like, when is the end of this all? Uh, but the kingdom that Christ is speaking about, he meant to expand from that place in a gradual way from Jerusalem, then to the state, Judea, and then to Samaria, the place outside, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. He had a plan for how this would, would eventually, in concentric circles, grow. That's his plan for the kingdom. And it would transcend borders. It would transcend nations and governments. None of that could stop its actual growth as it grew. That's why this kingdom is so much greater than any other kingdom. And it'll keep growing under Christ's command until he says it has grown to its point and he returns. He responds to them when they ask this question. Will you now restore the kingdom of Israel? And he says in verse 7, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons. That the Father has fixed by his own authority. Be patient. God's not going to tell you those specifics like when the end is going to happen. That's not what God has for you right now. He has a mission for you right now. And then verse 8. Here's the setup. Verse 8. 
is the, the passage that kind of captures it all. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It's not about Israel here anymore. This is way bigger. And I'm going to send my spirit so that you can bring it not just to Jerusalem, the, the city you're in, not just the state you're in, Judea, not just the outside of the Gentiles here in Samaria. You're going to go to the uttermost part of the world. It's a beautiful picture of how the book unfolds. Herein in verse 8 is expressed nothing less than the plan of God for the kingdom's expansion. It's the key to the book of Acts. In fact, I'd say it's the key to the church's mission on earth until Jesus comes again. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when the Spirit comes in this way, from that point forward, that's the normal way the Spirit of God works, is he comes when... The Spirit comes to unite people to Christ, and the Spirit indwells the believer, and the Spirit dwells in his church, and that has continued to propagate since then. And this is how he has grown his church, by this ministry of the Spirit. The power will come from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will enable the apostles and the original followers of Christ to be his witnesses, and that power extends to his witnesses today. They will be witnesses locally, distant lands, and to the ends of the earth. Really, verse 8 is almost like a table of contents for the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Verses, chapters 1 through 7, it's about Jerusalem and what happens there. Then after the stoning of, of Stephen, it extends in verse 8 to verse 11 as they scatter. As they're scattering persecution, they're actually bringing the gospel everywhere they go. That's why you can't crush the gospel. Um, as soon as you persecute people, they disband and go somewhere else and they bring the gospel with them. And that's what chapters 8 through 11 are, going to Judea and to Samaria. Then chapter 12 to 28, the end of the book, that's when Paul leads three distinct evangelistic missionary journeys, and he brings the gospel in, in their day all the way to Rome. That's where the, the book ends. It, to that point, that's, that's a remote part of the earth. But of course, there's more concentric circles after that that we are carrying out. Now, we still are where we are in Jerusalem, but we still have... Uh, we still have obligation to these other concentric circles of expansion. That's what we are about as believers today. Jesus explains his expansion plan. They ask, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Not for you to know the details. This is a process. Leslie Newbegin says it this way. The church is the pilgrim people of God. It is on the move hastening to the ends of the earth to beseech all men to be reconciled to God, and hastening to the end of time to meet its Lord who will gather all into one. It cannot be understood rightly except in a perspective which is at once missionary and also eschatological. It looks forward to the end when Christ comes. I mean, we are on a mission until Jesus returns. How will we know when the mission is complete? When Jesus returns. So in the meantime, be about that witness that God's called us to. Daryl Bach says this about... Uh, Acts 1.8. This commission in Acts 1.8 describes the church's key assignment of what to do until the Lord returns. The priority for the church until Jesus returns, a mission of which the community must never lose sight of, is to witness to Jesus to the end of the earth. The church exists in major part to extend the apostolic witness of Jesus everywhere. Verses 9 through 11 describe for us Jesus' ascension into heaven. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, 
and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Interesting, we assume these to be angels, that angels announce the dawn of Jesus' coming in the early parts of Luke. And now as he, the people go back up, or as Jesus goes back up, the people are looking up and the angels say, what are you looking up for? There's work to be done. Men of Galilee, why do you stand, verse 11, looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now one instance proving the expertise of the historian Luke happens in verse 9 and verse 10 and 11 for that matter. Look at the verses and notice he is very purposely using some verbs to describe the activity of the witnesses who watch Jesus ascend. He wants to make it known this is an actual historic fact, Christ's ascension, just like his resurrection and just like his life. Verse 9, as they were looking on, so they're eyewitnesses, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. So they were watching this. And while they were gazing, notice look, sight, gazing. These are three different verbs. Into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, these witnesses, the angels can see what they're doing. Why do you stand looking into heaven? You just watched everything happen and have witnessed it. There's no mistake. It's not a myth that Luke is writing. Uh, this is history. This is what happened and you are eyewitnesses. And then it says, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Luke depicts or his depiction is meant to show that the ascension was very closely watched and witnessed. It's a historical reality. James Boyce, who wrote the first hymn that we sang, a beautiful hymn, he said this, Christianity is an historical religion. It is a religion that is not based primarily on an idea or a philosophy. Most of the religions of the world can exist apart from their founder. You do not have to have a historical Buddha to have Buddhism. And and Boyce is right. Buddhism, we have Star Wars. Uh, Yodaism is the same thing as Buddhism. You don't need Yoda or Buddha to have the philosophy. Boyce goes on. All you have to have are Buddhist teachings. So also with many other religions. But this is not the case with Christianity. If you take away the history, if you reduce it as many have tried to do, to a religion of just mere ethics or ideas, Christianity evaporates. This is because Christianity is indissolubly linked to the life and accomplishments of Christianity's founder, Christ, who they watched ascend into heaven. He vanished. It's not that he's floating into space. This was just symbolizing he is now going to his place of exaltation where he will, from the Lord God's right hand, make the nations a footstool by the expansion of his kingdom, fulfilling Psalm 110, among other psalms. You know what's going on next week? The rapture. April 23rd, the rapture's happening. Have you heard this? You've seen it? So this could be the shortest sermon series I've ever done. I'll get one more in. The rapture. I mean, you know, another wise, as it's at least depicted by Yahoo.com, wise Bible scholar has given us some insight we've been missing and has been reporting April 23rd will be the rapture. Um, Let me just tell you what the report says so you know I'm not making this up. Many Christian theorists, many Christian, many Christian theorists, Yahoo says, 
suggests the rapture will coincide with the planetary constellations foretold in a hidden prophecy. I mean, a very hidden prophecy from the Bible. Continues. Christian conspiracy theorist David Mead is the main expert, suggesting the end of the world will arrive on April 23rd when a mythological planetary system known as Planet X, or Nibiru, will appear in space. He claims it will then pass the Earth in October, causing the start of the rapture with huge volcanoes and volcanic eruptions due to its gravitational force. He said, during this time frame, on April 23, 2018, the moon appears under the feet of the constellation Virgo. I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, the sun appears to precisely clothe Virgo. Jupiter is birthed on April 8, 2018. I bet that happened. I missed it. The 12 stars at, the date, at that date include the nine stars of Leo and the three planetary alignments of Mercury, Venus, and Mars, which combine to make a count of 12 stars on the head of Virgo. And I know you want to know the significance of this. Thus, the constellations Virgo, Leo, Serpens, Offencus represent a unique once-in-a-century sign exactly depicted in the 12th chapter of Revelation. This is our time marker. Okay, this kind of stuff has been going on for a long time. Yet, in verse 7 of our text, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In verse 10, And while they were gazing into the heavens, and, and this is tantamount being nice to gazing into the heavens when the people come up with this kind of stuff. And while they were gazing into the heavens, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? My will is not for you to stand and look into heaven. My will is not for you to try to figure out the times and the seasons. My will for you, since I've sent your spirit, is to go be my witnesses until he comes again. John Stott says, in conclusion to these opening verses, for this conclusion to Christ's work on earth, it was also a fresh beginning. Just as the Spirit came upon Jesus to equip him for his public ministry, so now the Spirit was, was to come upon his people to equip them for theirs. The Holy Spirit would not only apply to them the salvation which Jesus had achieved by his death and resurrection, but would impel them to proclaim throughout the world the good news of salvation. Salvation is to be given and shared. Now I would like us to close by doing this. Let's read together verse 8. All of us together, look at your insert or look at verse 8. Let's together now at the same time say verse 8 to close. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to save us by applying the work of of the Son to us by the will of you, our Father, to indwell us, to seal us, to make Scripture understandable and applicable to us. Now, please strengthen us by your Spirit to be your faithful witnesses wherever you would have us be. In Jesus' name, amen.